Okay, guys, today what I uh, set up for you is not arguably, definitively, the two hottest Montreal Jews will be speaking, one of whom is arguably the globally hottest Jew. We'll leave it for the audience to decide who's who. David Freiheit, how are you? Am I pronouncing that right? It, yes, it is. It's Freiheit phonetically, unless we're in French and we roll the R. Freiheit. Oh, right. But by the way, uh, I refer to you, and I, I, think I'm, I think I've even called you this. I mean, uh, I call you Viva. And I, I've even referred to you as just Fry. So yesterday I was talking to my wife and she says, Oh, you call him Viva? I said, yeah. And then today I was texting with my daughter and she said, oh, do you have a show today? I said, yeah, I have a show with Viva. And then she said, Viva, who's Viva? So then it, it, so am I the one who is starting to call you Viva or do other people call you Viva? I get it on the street. Barnes, Robert, you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. do the street. He calls me Viva. I mean, it's, it's become uh, not just a pseudonym. I respond to it publicly now. And it's, <laughs> it, it's the funniest thing in the world is that when I started the channel, Everyone's like, why'd you pick Viva Fry? People are going to think it's short for Vivian. And I don't, I, I, I was stubborn, stuck with it. Um, but uh, it has become my second name now. Very nice. Now, let's talk about something very important. Why we've gone with completely different hairstyles for <laughs> this uh, show. Yeah. You've gone with the Jufro, which I used to sport a pretty impressive one myself. I went sort of mafioso slicked back. Can you explain that, please? I, um... At one point, it had it had, it had to do with COVID, but not so much. I was able to get haircuts, and then at some point, not so able to get haircuts. I'm actually not sure if we need to show the vaccine passport to get a haircut. <laughs> but at some point, I just said, I'm going to let this grow out. Uh, I'm going to call it the Viva Fro. It, it is a throwback to when I was in high school. Anybody who, who's on our locals community has seen some very embarrassing pictures that I deliberately post as perks to our locals community. <laughs> but I've, I've wanted to go back to the long hair for a while. It's sort of it, it seems to represent or embody, you know, my spirit at this time. I'm feeling a little uh, suffocated by the world. And this is my way of getting back at it. Just you you wouldn't it. you wouldn't you couldn't tell that you're frustrated if one were to read your uh, Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to say of all the people that I you know know of their content on Twitter, you're pretty pissed off these days. I, uh, I've, I've, I've reached a threshold. I mean, I'm not calling, I still don't swear, but right. I will, I do call people morons. Yes. I have, look, you know, it's not, it's a, it's the worst kept secret. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. I don't, I never liked the, the Holocaust analogies or, you know, comparing current day stuff to historical atrocities, not because of my identity side of it, just because I always thought it's a weak argument. It leads to misunderstandings. It leads to deliberate taking out of contexts, et cetera. But I've now, anyone following me on Twitter, I, I now firmly believe we have entered the realm where it is appropriate to draw analogies between what we're seeing now and historical atrocities that have followed the same timeline, the same, you know, the, the same progression. But yeah, my Twitter, I mean, it's, it's, at first, it's you start polite. I'm still going to be relatively polite, but I do firmly believe these politicians need to be publicly mocked and publicly ostracized for what they're doing in terms of unscientific garbage and absolute social destructive policy, uh, if you mock them, then maybe other people will be saying, will, will be swayed to think, yeah, there's something absurd about what they're doing. There is something uh, indefensible about what they're doing. And, and maybe that should be reflected the next time there's an election. So do you think, I asked this recently of another guest, I can't remember which one it was, but let me pose you the same question. What If you had to allocate 100 points in terms of the relative influence of these two factors, one is 
it's just ignorance, right? They're they're kind of making these decisions in an ad hoc, you know, non-scientific basis. It's, it, it is just a manifestation of the fact that the world is a complicated place. They don't know what the hell they're doing. And so, so let's call it the ignorance factor. And then the other one is kind of the grand conspiratorial, you know, when you're drawing the analogy with the Holocaust. So that, that factor would be, no, there are nefarious forces that is causing the government to act this way. How much, how many points would you allocate? If it were equal, you'd say 50-50. So what, give me your allocation of points for ignorance versus authoritarianism. Now, I, 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 I think it would be case by case, depending on which leader we're talking about when it comes to Trudeau. Uh, I think it's going to be much more authoritarianism and not in the sense of trying to get to a world where we're building camps and sh- shipping people off in trains to their deaths. I mean, not like that. And it goes back to the Mark Twain expression, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it tends to rhyme. So I, I'm not accusing Trudeau of embarking on Hitlerian type uh, uh, genocide. What I am accusing Trudeau of is exploiting it's either malicious or political opportunity, but it's not ignorance anymore. It's not that they don't know because it's not possible anymore. You have enough views expressing opposing views. You have enough policy that is different from, as we see now in the UK yesterday to yeah. Canada today. So I think it is nefarious in the sense that it's political opportunism. Trudeau has no reason to ever let this pandemic go. It's been the biggest blessing for him and his power-hungry aspirations, which we knew of before. He can jam through firearm legislation. He can jam through censorship legislation. He can distract from his own corruption and his own ethics violations. He, he can use this pandemic and all the crises that flow from it to distract from his own corruption and his own lack of ethics. Uh, from Francois Legault's perspective, he's pushing the envelope. He's testing it to see how far he can go with what measures uh, and how far he can push it before he gets pushed back. And to think that he's not going to or has not applied this to other policies that he's had in his back pocket, language policies, you know, increasing the power of the Office de la Langue Française. So I think they're all doing it with this in mind. And, I, you know, it's not nefarious conspiratorial. It's just political opportunism. I do not chalk it up to ignorance anymore. So, okay, if we go with political situational political opportunism that would be let's say what you talked about with trudeau you know i want the attention to be removed away from my ethical breaches so here i've got this wonderful pandemic that i can use to deflect okay but is there any element of the nefarious side of the the two factors i gave you that is more long-term view kind of the davos perspective right again without sinking into the conspiratorial stuff you know this is an opportunity for us to grab power from the great unwashed and the rubes and the plebs forevermore because we are the anointed one who truly know what is best for society so do you do you attribute any causality to that angle or is it all short-term political opportunism uh in my humble opinion now that could be a mix of the both i mean we know Christian Freeland is on the board of trustees of the World Economic Forum. We know that these national leaders, they're not pledging allegiance. That would be more, a little too hyperbolic, but they are certainly expressing interest in international goals, international ideals, which are international in name only because they're ultimately governed by the most powerful of the international nations. Right. So y- y- you see it. It's a grand conspiracy? No, it's just politicians trying to create work for themselves, create a place for themselves, and to seize the power so that they can continue to give reason to their own existence. Something that most people don't really appreciate, and it's, it's a new revelation to me, is that 
this idea of the democracies in which we have been living in the West, it's a new concept, historically speaking. Historically speaking, there has been a ruling political elite and these serf, the lowly peasants, who, whose lives are dictated at every microcosmic aspect, not micro, yeah, microcosmic aspect of their lives. So what we've been benefiting from for the last, let's say, 100, 200 years is something of a historical anomaly. The, the natural tendency of government is to head in the direction that it's heading. You create these international goal, international organizations with, with virtuous international aspirations. Yeah, that's great for the ruling class. They can fly off to Europe and kneel in front of a wall in, in the Ukraine and drink it up with their buddies in, in, in Italy or wherever Trudeau was while they're locking down the peasants because global warming. I mean, it's, so that, that's where we are heading, I think. And so I, I don't think that, you know, in the early stages, you could chalk it up to ignorance, but at some point... Um, the, donating donating our PPE, personal protective equipment, to China, knowing the pandemic is coming, that, that might not be ignorance. That might be pledging allegiance to foreign interests. Yeah, I've actually made the exact same argument regarding uh, the fact that if you look at uh, history, it's been a complete outlier, anomalous reality what we've had in the West over the past you know couple of centuries, and that the natural state of things, if I can regrettably put it that way, is for a few people to rule the many great unwashed. And so we're simply reverting to that. And what, 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 what causes me great dismay is that you see the speed at which people are willing to give up their freedoms. Right? I mean, as you know, you've, you've read my latest book and you, you know, you've heard me talk about idea pathogens. It is amazing to see the level of apathy and cowardice that allows for these realities to take place, right? It's not as though there are bigger guys that are fighting you and they're winning the battle. You're simply opening the door and saying, yeah, come in and do whatever you'd like. Uh, you own me. It is. It is. Uh, who said? I'm gonna. I'm gonna destroy the expression. But it's. It's fascism comes cloaked in benevolence. Exactly. Uh, if right. I made. If I made that up, let's. 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 Let's uh, coin that <laughs> right now. I mean, it's. It's a. It's a Lewis Carroll had a, a variation, a much more eloquent description that, it's the people who who tyrannize you for your own benefit. They feel good about it. They'll keep doing it forever. Yeah. And when you, I said, you know, I, I came to this revelation the other day. When you think it's necessary, you never perceive yourself as being a prisoner. I was talking with someone the other day, like. I said, like, what does Canada have to do in order for you to consider this to be now a, an official police state? And there, to this person was literally nothing because it was all justified. And in that sense, they were sort of voluntarily submitting to the rule uh, or to the abuse of the rule. So they never even viewed themselves as a prisoner. It's amazing. It's like, it, it is amazing. Like, what they say? Yeah. It, first of all, cloaking it under the greater good is an, uh, is an amazing concept because anything that is for the greater good, there is no individual atrocity that could not be committed and justified in the name of the greater good. And people don't really appreciate that until they come for them. And that's that's when people realize what? that the greater good, uh, individual rights are the greater good. And if you don't value those, you're actually not fighting for the greater good at all. And many different totalitarian ideologies that otherwise share nothing in common other than their ethos of totalitarianism have used exactly the same strategy. So it kind of shows you the regularity of human nature, the predictability of human nature, right? I mean, Islam does the same thing, right? If you speak out against Islam, it's a form of fitna. Fitna means you're creating chaos and mischief. And for the cohesiveness of society, we must 
uh, disassociate your head from the rest of your body for the greater good. We're doing a good thing. So sign up, sign up for decapitations, right? So, uh, you know, the, the communists did the same thing, right? Uh, you know, Lysenkoism, uh, which was a, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's, it's, it's a genetic theory that Lysenko developed that was contrary to the, uh, the, the, the laws of genetics because his theory, which is completely false, was more in line with Marxism, which led to then the death by famine of 20 to 30 million people was also promulgated under the guise of this is for the collective good. So there are different ways by which we can sing the song of collective good. Trudeau does it one way and Hitler does it another way and Islam does it another way, but it's the same playbook. It's the same playbook. I mean, especially with, when it comes to governments and the idea of not undermining the authority of the government. I mean, that's the basis for declaring people enemy of the states so that you can then you know, do whatever you want to them because by them undermining the government, they are undermining the greater good and therefore that is a risk that needs to be extinguished. Um, I don't want to... I, the, drawing the analogies, I, I'll say one thing. I never understood how society as a whole could descend into the madness of the of Nazi Germany until of living through this. And it's not to say that everyone's like, well, they're not shipping people off. They're not doing. Yes, they're they're not doing the same things, but the rationale is the same. The idea that people think Nazi Germany occurred overnight, where you could justify what you had justified doing to your fellow citizens, it, it's I'm seeing it now over time. We're two and a half years into this pandemic, or two years in. We're not talking about winding it down. We're not talking about two weeks to flatten the curve. We're talking about taxing the unvaccinated. We're talking about 50 plus percent of the population, allegedly, if you believe these falsified polls, which I don't, but separate issue, supports imprisonment of the unvaccinated. I mean, what, what is next when you, when you have such targeted hatred against an identifiable group, setting aside the fact that this is just a variation of disguised discrimination, knowing who is likely to be unvaccinated or undervaccinated in Canada, as in the U.S., the black community, the indigenous community, the Latino community. And what are you basically saying? Exclude them from society. Uh, talk about denying them health services. Talk about taxing them extra for health services and ultimately talk about uh, imprisoning them for not wanting to get vaccinated it's a rhyme. It's not quite as sharp of a rhyme, but it is as much of a rhyme as not just 1930s Germany, but of other eras of, of Mao's China, uh, other eras uh, that have descended into this collective madness. So in, in, in the case where you ask that person, you know, what, what's the red line? What would get you? What would trigger you to actually, you know, activate your inner honey badger? If I were to ask you that question for sort of the collective do you, do you foresee optimistically a, a red line whereby Canadians will be awakened out of their stupor and we'll be able to redress this? Or is this a losing ship? Where, well, what do you uh, I don't want to be blackpilled or blackpill. I would have thought that the idea of compelling vaccination in young people who I'm not a doctor. This is not medical advice. This is just objective knowledge at this point who are statistically virtually not at risk in any meaningful sense, more likely to be hospitalized from the flu than from COVID. I would have thought that at the very least, parents, honey badger, would have been activated when they said, if your kid's 13 to, you know, 13 and over, they can't have a normal childhood unless they get double vaccinated. Knowing, however infinitesimal the risks of adverse effects from the vaccine are, knowing that those risks exist and are arguably 
as infinitesimal as the risks from COVID for kids, that they are now going to say, yeah, the government owns my children's body. And unless they get double vaccinated, they can't play sports, they can't go to movie theaters, they can't go to... I would have thought that would have been the, the line in the sand. For most, it's been, it's been a, you know, an increased line in the sand for some, but I know good people, smart people, loving people who are now saying, yeah, posting pictures of vaccinating their eight-year-olds, um, thinking that it's virtuous and it's for the greater good. I, when, you, when you've given up your bodily autonomy, um, you've given up everything. And, and I think I thought that would have been the line. I mean, I drew an analogy with the uh, temporary passing of uh, personal income tax in 1917, right? Uh, so it's just a temporary thing. It's only it's, it's just going to be for a bit of time. Well, 105 years later, we're still paying income tax and, and that rate has only increased. I mean, I just heard on a report that California is thinking of doubling their uh, income tax, which would be difficult to imagine what that number would be like. So if you're able to take a quote temporary measure like personal income tax that was that started in 1917 and 105 years later, the government comes to me I mean, very much akin to the mafia when they do extortion, except that they're much more dangerous than the mafia because they don't take a 3% cut or a 5%. They take about a 65% cut when you add up all my taxes. And that's not enough. Maybe it can go up. Well, then you, it, I think your point is correct that there's almost no red line that you could cross that won't keep me in my stupor and apathy. And that's a very disheartening uh, thought. It, disheartening, discouraging, and then you, and you see... Uh, let's take a less hyperbolic comparison. You could look what happened in Venezuela. I could never understand how that could happen within the span of a, 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 what two decades. Yeah. What, what, I mean, you tax people up the wazoo. What ends up happening is the government state ends up growing exponentially. Oh, you got income tax. You got to have collections. You got to have you got to have uh, people who sue for the to collect. Then you got to have court systems to deal with that. You got to have police to enforce it. The, the government state it grows exponentially like the proverbial blob. And the bigger it gets, the more it needs, and then the harder it goes out. You chase people out. You get the brain drain. You get the financial drain. As we've seen in Canada, specifically as it relates to doctors, thus creating a situation where we have crappy healthcare infrastructure, thus creating a situation where the pandemic hits worse, thus creating a situation where the government has to come in and say, look, we got to lock you down to compensate for the consequences of our neglect for decades. And then at some point, there's no one left to tax. And you end up having a society crumble. Um, and you know, not to say I, I foresee Canada going the Venezuelan direction, but I can really easily see how it happens. It's just it's just one thing after a vax tax. Well, li listen, I've I've I came to Canada from Lebanon as an 11 year old child in 1975, and I remember actually I was just having this conversation today. I went out to lunch uh, with my wife, uh, and if anybody's wondering, no, we can't sit inside a restaurant, so we buy our Peruvian rotisserie chicken and eat it in the car. That's our romantic uh, lunch date. Uh, but in any case, uh, all of the streets were filled with snow. It was very, very difficult to navigate through all of the streets to try to find parking. Now, when I was a child, uh, I remember that in Montreal, uh, uh, the city would, uh, 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 you know, uh, argue that you could never have snow in Montreal because the second that the snow falls, they're already cleaning it. And I remember when I was a child, the speed at which the snow would be removed was truly exemplary. I mean, 
Yes, of course, sometimes it will accumulate. We live in Montreal, but it certainly wasn't at the rate that we see today, whereby it could be where, where you and I roughly live, at least where I live. It, you know, you could be waiting four, five, six, seven days before someone picks it up. If you look at the healthcare system, I always thought, understanding socialism, that every single service that we were getting for our taxes was eventually going to get worse. And that's exactly what happened. Healthcare now, you have to also get private health insurance, as I do with my employer. Uh, Yes, you can go to public school, but you better send them to private school if you want a really good education. So every single one of the contracts that we had negotiated with the government that says, sure, you could tax me to hell, but then you give me services, all those services are now have gone to hell. And now I have to pay double so that I can be out of the system. So and not, yeah, go ahead. Not just that guy, like with the snow example, takes longer. I, I, I just got towed because I forgot they had snow cleaning that occurred the next day. So they take, I got a $109 ticket. There's an administrative, you know, there's a whole, they set up a website so I can pay online. They, they create, it's like you, you create one problem so that you can create another government body to deal with it. Uh, and the healthcare system, I mean, people don't appreciate, it's free. And so in certain emergency situations, it generally is, it's, it's good, it's nice. But then, you know, when you hear about the waiting lines and now you hear about canceling elective surgeries or canceling and elective surgeries are not like nose jobs. They're like skin mole removals. They're they're serious things. And it's great. I mean, the government makes you dependent on the public system. And then, as we see now, says, well, now that we own you, we're going to start taxing you again if you do things that we don't think you should be doing since you're in the public system. And then it just it's an it's an unsustainable system. But I mean, I don't know what the what the solution is, because leave is the the leave the only solution. Look, it's there's two things. I mean, leaving is one way of putting it. You know, I said I would run for the country before I ran from the country. And I did. But there's leaving leaving, and then there's being forced out. Because when they say that my kids are not going to be able to have a normal childhood unless they do unless they put into their bodies what the government says they should, which in one particular case doesn't do what the government said it was going to do when they first said it, and we don't know what else it can do in the long run. I'm not, a, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, and Gad, I got both shots. I choose not to eat in restaurants even though I could. But this vaccine is different than other vaccines. mRNA technology is different. My wife's a, a, a PhD, you know, understands the difference. This requiring this particular vaccine under these particular contexts of children is not like polio, measles, mumps, rubella. So forget that. But when the government says we own your kids and by the way, if you don't want to do this, we might, if it's in the legal case, prevent a father from seeing their child if they're not vaccinated. Well, you're one step away from the government taking your kids away if they don't if you don't do what the government thinks you should do. And so in that sense, long winded answer. I might not be leaving. They might be chasing me away. So, you, I mean, you are a lawyer. And I just found out when I read your bio that you weren't you the editor of the law journal at University yep. of Laval. So and, basically, and, you share an honor with the Nobel prophet Barack Obama, who was the editor at mm-hmm. Harvard uh, Law Review, right? Well, I, I prefer to say I share the honor with, uh, I think it was Jean Chrétien, who was the, I think he was the president of the Law Student Association at Université Laval. But yeah, I was, if you can believe this, anybody watching, I went to Laval University, Université Laval, Anglophone from Westmount. Uh, first year, I, was, I, I became the first year representative, editor-in-chief the second year, and president of the Law Student Association in the third year, which was, it was great. This is, the world was a beautiful world where we were all one unit and not like 
subdivided by language, religion, and race. Uh, I, I don't know if I don't know if that could happen in today's environment. But so yes, si- I was the editor. So, so since we're talking about, uh, well, I'll first ask you a legal question, then I'll ask you a personal one that's related to the legal profession. Uh, given the Canadian judicial system, the provincial one, whatever the, the the legal issues are, how many of the existing mandates will eventually be defeated in the through the legal process, based on your understanding of all these issues? Okay, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, um, my prediction is that they all should be declared unconstitutional on the merits. And so that means on a, it would be on what we call a permanent injunction. You would go to court on a trial on the merits, all the evidence is adduced, experts, yada, yada. You would say, we want a permanent injunction to strike down this order or to declare that it cannot be reinstated if it's no longer in effect at the time. On a permanent injunction, one of the main criteria that applies at an interlocutory or provisional injunction does not apply at the permanent. And that is, I hope I'm not making a mistake, I'm, I'm sure I'm not, the presumption of constitutionality of the law. So when you get to the permanent injunction, there's no benefit of the presumption of constitutionality, it just has to be proven. Uh, on the injunctive level, there's a presumption of the validity, there's a presumption of the constitutionality of the law that you're challenging on an interim basis. So you're basically saying, uh, curfew. We want to challenge it on an interim, on a provisional uh, injunction, an emergency injunction. Well, the court comes in and says, look, we presume it to be valid. So if you want to show why it's unconstitutional, you have to show it here and the burden is very high. On the merits, you just have to say, this does not, this is unconstitutional and there's no, there's not the same threshold of the presumption of constitutionality. Also, on the permanent, you don't have to show, uh, irrepar- well, you don't have to show urgency and you don't have to show irreparable harm really you just have to show that on the on the, the merits of the provision itself it does it is unconstitutional or infringes your right we haven't gotten to any of the permanent um hearings yet the injunction the permanent injunctions we've only had the interlocutory provisional and so we had provisionals on the quarantine hotels provisionals on the curfew provisionals on the face mask this is provincially and federally and the courts have all said look it's not up to us at this point to interfere with government decisions, government policy. So you haven't proven the urgency or the irreparable harm or the you haven't proven the constitutional violation. Being forced to stay at home after eight o'clock is not such a big deal in the context of a pandemic. So dismissed on the interlocutory or provisional, but you know, you can go ahead to the permanent. If and if and when they ever get there, they should be overturned. Because in my mind they're unconstitutional on their face. Telling someone that they have to go to a government designated quarantine facility upon return by air to Canada, that's prison. I don't care that it's in a hotel, that's prison. Telling people that they're locked in their homes after eight o'clock, I don't care what you call that, that's unlawful detention. That's the government telling you to be somewhere against your will and that you can't leave. So is that, is the constitutional violation there something akin to freedom of movement? I'm allowed to, as a free individual with personal agency, to move from point A to B without you interfering. Is Is that what it is? There's a, there's a bunch of them. I mean, the charter has a bunch of rights. Freedom of association. Telling yeah. me that I can't protest like they did in Nova Scotia is freedom of association. Uh, freedom of religion. Saying that you can't go to church unless you're vaccinated. You can't go to synagogue uh, if there's more than 10 people violates freedom of religion. Uh, what's the other one? Mobility rights. Interprovincial travel. Uh, the right to leave and come back to your country 
there, there's a bunch of rights in the Constitution. So then, sorry. So then, when 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 the government violates these in a very clear way, is it that they have a kind of superseding mechanism that says, in this unique circumstance where there is an emergency, I'm allowed to, you know, negate all of those constitutional rights? Is that the mechanism that they're arguing under? It's an even broader, more blanket mechanism than that. It's the first provision of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which says this charter sets out all of your rights and freedoms, and I'm paraphrasing, except in as much as they can be violated in accordance with the rules of a free and democratic society. So basically it says, look, you have all these rights, but if we, the courts, or if we, if, if we determine that they can be violated uh, as per the rules of a free and democratic society, then they can be infringed. So, you know, the idea of prison is a violation of civil rights and liberties, but it's justifiable in a free and democratic society. And the way that they've, they haven't even gotten around the justification by invoking the first uh, clause of the charter, but that's, that's the catch-all. You have these rights, but if we say that there's a pandemic, then we can violate or infringe that right uh, in accordance with the rules and principles of a free and democratic society. The other way they do it, it's the notwithstanding clause. I think it's section 33, which basically says the government can specifically violate certain charter rights, not all like the right to vote. The government can specifically do it if in the law it specifically says that it's violating your charter rights, but it can only do it for maximum of five years or for whatever shorter period of time that the law says. And historically, this was intended to preserve provincial power so as not to be usurped by the Supreme Court when the 1982 Constitution Act was ratified. And then, you know, we've seen the way it's been used. Uh, Quebec has used it for language rights. Yeah. They say in the law, we're violating your language rights and we get to do it because of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, and now we've seen it in the context of the curfew. We're violating your rights, but it can be justified in a free and democratic society under the first provision. So basically, all of these constitutional rights that we said were constitutional and rights are basically government privileges that they can take away at a whim with 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 minimal recourse for the citizens. Amazing. So uh, b prior to the pandemic, the thing that used to worry me the most about the Canadian sort of ecosystem was the infringements on freedom of speech, right? Uh, trying to find ways to couch something as hateful speech and so on, right? Which, of course, the United States at least has an extra layer of protection with the First Amendment. So do you do you foresee? So this is this this my question need not be related to to the pandemic, right? And it isn't probably uh, the the issue of hate speech laws that we have in Europe or in Canada, which are certainly more protected in the U.S. via the First Amendment. Do you see this slippery slope getting worse in Canada, or is there any blowback oh, yeah. against it? We've we've fallen off the cliff. <laughs> like, exactly. This, this this is back. I'm trying to find some optimism, man. <laughs> When, uh, I, I, here's the optimism. I learned it the hard way over the last few years, so maybe other people will learn and it will be reflected in the polls. Right. But when I started doing my the vlogs, the V-L-A-W-G-S, and people were like, you know, I would do a video on uh, some Canadian stuff or freedom of speech stuff. And, and I noticed all the time in the chat, they said, what are you talking about? You guys don't have freedom of speech in Canada. Some comic was fined by the Human Rights Tribunal for making a joke about a, uh, a disabled celebrity kid. Um, you know, Bill C-16 is going to mandate compelled speech. And at the time, I was not expressing my opinions as much, although I had them in my head. I was like, okay, people are talking about Jordan Peterson. Compelled speech, uh, compelled gendering of individuals. I heard what Jordan Peterson was saying. And at the time, I did a video saying, yeah, I under in theory, he has a very good point. In reality, the examples that people are using 
as the uh, cornerstone examples of how this is going to go bad are outlier cases. Well, bad cases make bad law, and then bad law makes bad precedent, and bad precedent creates bad future law. And we're there now, where, you know, hate speech is now speech that um, people don't like. Yeah. It's Tom McDonald, for anybody who knows Tom McDonald, great Canadian rapper, fled, I mean, I don't say fled, he's in the United States. He's, he's amazing, but he had a song, I think it was called Fake Woke, where he said there's a, difference between free, uh, there's a difference between hate speech and speech that you hate. And I never understood it at the time. But when you had the government setting these hate speech rules, I wish I had the foresight to have envisioned the way the government would exploit and abuse of those hate speech laws to basically say, at some point, hey, calling uh, someone eth- unethical or corrupt or a moron is hate speech. And they can use it to stifle any form of legitimate political speech. And they're trying to do it. They're trying to do it with more current legislation. And I mean, it's it's just, uh, it's the next phase in a government taking control of society. The only question is, do people have the wherewithal to see it and to vote against it the next election? Within the legal, so for example, within academia, you know, if I may say, I've been, you know, one of the lone wolves uh, screaming about all these issues for nearly three decades. And of course, there are a few others, Jordan Peterson and others. Within the legal ecosystem, are there a few lawyers that you're aware of who are truly on, quote, the right side of these issues that will be able to take the mantle and fight these fights? Or it's a complete barren world of only woke people? You know, the funny thing is, I don't think, at least in Canadian or more specifically Quebec law, I don't think we have these types of personalities who are you know, as known as they are in the United States. In the, in the United States, not to, not to you know, refer to my own channel, but Robert Barnes is, is one of the most vocal free speech advocate attorneys out there. Uh, Harmeet Dillon. Yes, and she's great. You've got a bunch who are known for it, who are vocal and who are unapologetic. In Canada, you've got Rocco Galati, who's, who's spearheading some of the, um, some of the COVID lawsuits. Uh, you've got the JCCF. Justice yes, I was going to say exactly that one. I think I, I sit on their board. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're amazing. And yeah. they've got John Carpe, who's the president. That's um, the guy, yeah. I mean, I've interviewed him a couple of times. Other than that, I can tell you from, from my own experience, it's difficult to find attorneys in the province to even take some of these cases. So is that because, sorry to interrupt you, but is that is that because there is something in the Canadian water that makes us, quote, so kind of to use the stereotypes, you know, we're nice and we say sorry and so on. Is there something that doesn't lend for us to be as irrever- irreverent to authority as, say, the United States? Is, is that what causes the lack of personalities that are standing up? I don't, I mean, I don't, I couldn't answer it, but I do know what people posit as the theories is that we are, as a, as a Canadian people, used to being subjects. Right. And Americans, through their experience, through their experiment, are used to being free. And they fought for their freedom and they and they defied their authorities to gain their freedom. Whereas, you know, we have a totally different history. Now, I, the, the reason why I don't really, although maybe that does make sense, is like I'm Canadian. I'm, I'm vocal about, uh, you know, I've become vocal against it. I ran with the PPC. And maybe it's because of my own, you know, historical upbringing. I'm second generation Canadian. My, my granddad fled Poland in 1936. So maybe I have a different, uh, you know, a different history in my own mind that makes me somewhat more oppositional, defiant to authority. I don't know. But one thing is clear. I mean, as, as a society, we have it good here. It, it's we're, we're spaced out. We're not overpopulated. We've got what we want. It's a, we've got what we need. It's a very comfortable life. 
And so it's very easy for people to say, yeah, if, if we have a good, comfortable life, surely it has to be because of the government and not despite it. And so the idea is to just, you know, go along with what, what they promote. And that might be the tendency. But uh, I, I do think also that, you know, it's we are more socially, politically correct, yeah. which makes it more difficult for judges, for lawyers to on, on, on thorny political issues to take these hot potatoes and treat them the way they should be treated, which is, you know, uh, I don't want to use hyperbolic rhetoric, but to deal with the hot potatoes the way some lawyers in the States are doing it vocally and and uh, almost shockingly. But in Canada, I, I, I don't I don't go before the judges anymore. I have one case. I think my my online persona is a liability and not an asset at this point in front of the courts. Because you're not a serious guy because you do all your shtick on YouTube. It, it would be very easy for any judge to discredit a position that I put forward based on my online personality. Right. And I appreciate that. I mean, that's why I was back in the early days. I didn't I was not as free to create even the fun content on YouTube because I would go in front of a judge. And if he said, oh, Dave, I saw you waxing your legs with a drone over the weekend, <laughs> um, you know, that might re reflect poorly on my clients. Yes. But um, I, like I get calls. I just I, I can't even find lawyers to take these cases because two, re two realities, actually. Generally speaking, they, there's no money behind them which I think is the short-sighted uh, reality because there is no shortage of people willing to crowdfund good constitutional litigation. So I know that that is some motivation and I think it's a bad motivation in that it's both bad and wrong. I think there is, lawyers can get paid for doing this work because people want to crowdfund it. But the second issue is it's a system. Go in front of the courts, go in front of a judge who's wearing a face mask and tell him that it's illogical and unscientific to be wearing a face mask and see what happens to the case. And then in a highly political uh, system where everything is weaponized, see who files ethical complaints against lawyers who take these cases. Um, see what other, you know, what other administrative means people can employ as, as tactics to intimidate, to punish, to, you know, to penalize. And I'm not saying that it, it, I don't know that some of it happens, but I know that some, uh, some other of it happens. Right. And so th these are considerations. And some lawyers just say, look, I have a good practice. I don't need this. I'll go do some corporate commercial divorce stuff. It pays well, and I don't have to deal with the politics. Uh, so in a sense, you set me up. Remember, I said earlier that I had two legal questions, one more professional, one more personal. So in a sense, you set me up by talking about the tension between you appearing in front of a judge and your YouTube stuff. What caused you or compelled you to take your successful career you had a good pedigree you were the law review guy at university at laval university and so on you, you i think you did you practice for six years or ten years how much was oh, it no, I, I practiced uh, from 2007 to present i just only have one file left as of this year okay but i mean at first you were pretty right. much I, a full was, I, was at, I was at um i was at for anybody who's from canada or montreal borden ladner gervais blg okay. it was used to be mcmaster mean merged with uh gervais i forget what it was it merged in 2000 it was at one point in time the biggest law firm in Canada in terms of number of lawyers. Top so 10 law firm there you go. So you were, you were going down the, the, the straight and narrow path. And then at some point, something compelled you to say, I want something else. And you went and jumped for it. And it's very risky because there is, there is a, a cost to all that you had to put into, you know, becoming a lawyer and a successful one. So what, so what compelled you? What gave you the courage? And I ask this, I say it's personal because then someone can take that lesson. In my next book, let me let me give you the context of how I'm asking this. So in, in my next book, so in, in The Parasitic Mind, I'm talking about idea pathogens that can cause you to engage in disordered thinking. So the next book is the flip side of that uh, coin. It's what are some mindsets that lead to happiness, that lead to 
well-being to lead to contentment. And so one of the things that I talk about is this idea of managing regret so that you can have what the ancient Greeks talked about, ataraxia. Ataraxia means tranquility of mind. So I argue that one of the main sources of regret is when you wake up at 67 and say, you know, I never wanted to be a chartered accountant. I just followed in my dad's footsteps footsteps i always wanted to be a painter and now i regret it i think it's too late and that regret eats away at you right so that you know as you go to your deathbed you're always having this looming recurring regret well in your case you said i used to be here there's a big cost to switching to something else but i'm doing it i don't want to be 67 and regret that what compelled you to do it and give you the courage to do it uh, I see the, the, the line between courage and stupidity, I think, is only a question of outcome. <laughs> so, like, you know, if I were if I had if, if it had all failed and I had to crawl back hands and knees, people would have said it was a stupid decision uh, by virtue of luck, fluke and, and a little bit of tenacity. It's worked out. So it, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes you can't help but judge things uh, except based on how they turned out in order to assess the wiseness of the decision at the time. But it wasn't a decision. It was a necessity. I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. It was a. First of all, no one is ever going to accuse me or suggest that I have tranquility of mind. So even if I have no regrets in life, I will not have a tranquil mind. But at the time. Is that a Jew thing? I can say it because I'm Jewish. Is it a Jew thing or is it a David thing? I think it it is. uh, It might be a high. I don't know if it's if it's genetic, if it's I I don't know. Cultural. It is it is. It's a hyperactive mind and it, it never it never sleeps for good and for bad. Uh, which is, you know, part and parcel. When you have bad thoughts in it, they they compound. When you have good thoughts, th- that's better. But uh, you know, the, the practice of law, I, I never liked it. I never liked it one day more than the day before. And so I did it for 2007 to uh, 2006 to 2010, 11, give or take, at at Board and Ladner. Uh, I, 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 you know, it was, and I, you know, by and by all accounts, it's not. This is not a question of of, of pomposity at all. I, I my father was a partner at Stike Elliott. I was a lawyer, bilingual, studied in French, went to McGill. It was partner track for anybody who was ever going to be a partner at a law firm. But I never liked the practice. I never liked the ambiance. I never liked the, the, the stress because it's not good stress. It was bad stress. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I had had my first kid with my wife. I, I took a couple months leave. I think, uh, yeah, two months leave, went back to work. And after six months, I, I just cannot do this day in and day out. It's not a question of you know regret at 67. It's a question of dying at 50. And so I said, I, I, I just have to do it. I have to quit. My wife said... We well, I was going to ask you, so what, what, what does your wife think at that point? My wife could see the misery, and I'm not trying to be melodramatic. She could see the unhappiness. My father could see it, and it was, it was just... It was, it was, it, the decision had to be made. We were just lucky. We had minimal expenses, um, and you know, we, we lived below our means, which was nice. So I had a bit of a cushion for a three month, you know, window after quitting. And I said, I was going to go do commercial photography, get back to what I loved. And in the meantime, I started my own solo practice, which I ran for seven years, which was fantastic. You know, a great turned into a boutique litigation firm. And, and it was fantastic. My dad ended up joining in 20, 2011, I think. What did and you call it? Solar practice? Oh, a, a sol- solo practice. Oh, solo practice. Solo. Okay, thank so you. I started off solo. Uh, then we, then I, I joined up with a paralegal, joined up with another lawyer. My dad was forced out of uh, the partnership at Steichman Elliott due to policies. So he says, let's all do this together. And we built it up until we had like seven, seven, five to seven lawyers at one point in time. Don't anybody hold me to the numbers. My memory is bad. But even then, a solo practice, you have the freedom to do what you want, to practice the way you want, to take the clients you want, and to fire the clients you want. But I just never liked it anymore. And then at some point I said, look, you, you, you jump now and you grow wings on the way down 
or you sit at the top of the cliff and you just stare down and, and, and wonder what could be. And so then winding up the litigation practice was just like, we could make it, we could make it work. Between me and my wife, we said, Dave, at one point, I had just sold a video of me tying a plastic bag to an iPhone and then tying it to a rope and swinging it around in a circle. And it created an amazing sort of gyroscopic effect. I sold the video for a few hundred bucks through a video licensing agency. And, and Marion said, Dave, if you can make a few hundred bucks tying a plastic bag to an iPhone, we'll, we'll find a way. And so we found a way. But, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's courage, it's stupidity, it's ignorance. If, it's if you know how it's going to end, it will change your decision to do it, which is not the right way to look at it. And if you know what you have to put into it, it might deter you from doing it. But, um, you know, w with great risk come great reward or he who dares nothing need hope for nothing. But at some point you have to do what you feel comfortable with. And if it's being if it's living at different means, but being happy with what you do uh, at some point, you know, you, you have to answer to your to yourself and to your inner self. And, you know, when what you're doing is not making you happy. And an unhappy life is, is, is no life at all. Well, and that, uh, so another, not, not to forgive me for plugging again my next book, but uh, in, at one point I talk about uh, living an authentic life. Now, authenticity can mean several things. It can mean a personal quality, right? I'm authentic or I'm not, right? Kamala Harris is not authentic. Uh, Donald Trump is authentic for better or worse. Whenever he is being brazen and obnoxious and brash, he is still being authentic. But there's kind of a more existential authenticity. Be, you know, be, living an authentic life, meaning living a life that is consistent with your values, with the things that ultimately make you happy. And so I think what you did is that in calculating that, that calculus of authenticity, you said me wearing a suit and being an, a lawyer is inauthentic in that existential sense and therefore that's going to trigger me to take another action correct yeah it's like you feel like a fraud or not a fraud but like you just feel uncomfortable and fine people can do it people can fake it but it's it, i at some point i told my wife it's like I, i'd rather work photography at weddings and, and that's not to denigrate that it's it's i, I would be better doing that i'm yeah. good with people i like creating i like interacting i like interacting with people when they're happy i don't yeah. as a lawyer you're, you're, you are always interacting, by and large, especially in litigation. You're a legal <laughs> dentist, right? Dentists, you go well, to see them because you have a problem. You're afraid of dentists. You're and, basically oh, and, that. And, and and the client hates the dentist. Yeah. Like you, you, you're dealing with your own clients who are stressed, unhappy. They don't want to be with you any more than and they want to be at the dentist, except you, you cost more. You're dealing with opposing counsel who are snakes in the grass uh, only by degree. Uh, you're dealing with opposing parties who are the enemy, but you know by definition. Everything about the practice. You're this show with is who... sponsored by the Canadian Legal <laughs> Association. But so, some people like it. And then some people say, well, look, I get, I get value out of it. I do family law. It's a stressful situation. I feel like I'm, I'm doing good. Fine. I, my first mentor loved litigation. He loved the academic side of it. He loved the strategic side. It was a game and he genuinely loved it. And I genuinely admired him for genuinely loving it. I had other mentors who I knew did not genuinely love it. They were either in there for the golden handcuffs, they were in there for the ego, they were in there for other reasons. I said, if I, I wish I could have loved it because I would have been, I would have been, you know, I would have been great at it and I would still be great at it. But uh, it wasn't who I was and you can't, you cannot hide your vestigial tail. And my vestigial tail is more of what you see today than what you would have seen 10 years ago. But, uh, but I mean, and, and I'm just extremely lucky if things, things worked out in the sense that a, a pipe dream became sustainable. And, uh, and here we are. Do you think that, uh, I, and forgive me, I know I'm asking you to speak of yourself. Some people uh, are more uh, 
reticent to speak of themselves than others. But do, what do you think that your authentic qualities are is part of the secret sauce of what made you be successful? Because, for example, when I look at you in the time that we've known each other, one of the things that draws me to you is that you strike me as a very authentic guy. There's no pretense. I mean, what most people typically say about me is something very much along those lines, which is I can be the fancy professor and all professorian austere, but I can also self-flagellate as I did yesterday in a video that I released when I fakely apologized for my relationship with Jordan Peterson. So I can be this, the guy who's going to Stanford to talk about very fancy scientific things, but I'm also the complete joker who can be a buffoon. That is authentic. So do you think that you have a similar quality that draws people to your YouTube persona? I, I say this, this is not necessarily a compliment to myself. I'm in, I think I consider myself virtually incapable of being inauthentic, but in a, in a way that almost compromises, uh, you know, my potential success. Like I, I, I suffer from the same problem. No, so I, I am authentic I, I, I have, to a fault. Yeah, well, that's it. I have trouble not making the jokes that I want to make. I have trouble, you know, pretending pretending to be serious, or I have trouble not being authentic. I also have an irrational fear of of people thinking that I'm inauthentic. So, like, it's a, you cannot behave in a way where someone can capture you the next day and say you're an absolute hypocrite or you're not the same person I thought you were online. And and ultimately especially when you live a very exposed life on the social medias and the interwebs, people will, people will uh, decipher and they will identify inauthenticity, if not the outright 100%. hypocrisy. So like, I, I don't want to put anyone on blast for bad things, but like, you know, someone getting caught uh, abusing their dog, for example, uh, whereas online, so, you know, all this, I, I live with a fear of God that I don't want anybody even thinking that uh, I'm something that I'm not. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about it because I'm incapable of doing it. But I do think on the internet, inauthenticity leaches out and people discover it. People discover who are a fake, who are ultimately mean-spirited despite the persona. And in a way, yeah. I mean, there's authenticity, but then it also just turns into, what's the word I'm looking for? Confidence in the individual and integrity. I mean, and that's, that's, that's basically it. Is I'm incapable of being inauthentic in the sense that I'm incapable, I think, of not having integrity. And just by way of example, you know, like you get calls to do uh, or emails to sponsor certain products. And like, yeah, I just, I cannot and will not ever deal with that product regardless of how much you pay me. Yeah. Um, but oh, that's you know, kudos, it, to, kudos to you. I mean, well, I, because I'm, I'm afraid of getting, I'm, it's, a, it's a weird thing. I'm afraid of getting, I would, I would be afraid of getting caught. And, yeah. and I would be, I live as though there's a constant, uh, someone recording. If it's not, if it's not a, a, an eye in the sky, maybe it's the eye in the sky, although I'm not particularly religious, but, um, it's like, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I can't lie because I assume it's going to be discovered, and I, and I, and I am, I have a phobia of being inauthentic because I, I assume it will be discovered. But see, I'm going to add to that. See, in your case, the way you're describing it, if we can get uh, deeply psychological for a moment, mm -hmm. you're saying that your biggest fear is that others judge you for having violated an authenticity protocol. In my case, it's even more punishing. I am my worst judge, meaning that every action that I do has to pass through my sieve of maladaptive perfectionism. So, for example, when I when people say, well, why do you do all that you do? I mean, you take all these risks. You already live a stressful life. You're already very well known. And I always say, well, so let me explain it to you. When I go to bed at night and I put my head on the pillow, I'm not sure if I maybe discussed this when I came on your show. Uh, I, in order for me to avoid having insomnia and having those racing thoughts, I need to know that everything that I did was 
perfectly in accordance with my purity bubble. And if I don't do that, then I am tortured. I'm a tortured soul. So I don't have to worry about what other people think. Although I do get upset when people defame me, you know, on online because I find that such an injury to truth. But it's my judgment of myself that is the biggest driver of my need to always be right. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and, and but now we're going to have like an argument as to who's more neurotic in their in their in their pursuit of authenticity. I, on the one hand, yeah, I mean that that's the thought process that goes on. And when I say that I'm nervous that someone might perceive me as being inauthentic, it's not in the sense that my behavior is only for what other people think of me. Concrete example, but I'm 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 uh, changing it a little just so nobody can identify anything. Uh, at one point, I I did something in a video and didn't give someone credit because I didn't think they would want to be identified in one of my videos. Yes. So, um, and so then, you know, then the issue was, well, why didn't you give me credit? And then the thought was that I, it was trying to hog information or trying to misappropriate information where in my spirit, when I did it, it, it was, was for actually, a good reason. Yeah. It was for a form of protection because <laughs> not everybody wants to be associated with an individual who talks about things I do. And so what bothered me most was not why I did what I did, but that the person thought that yeah, the yes. reason why I did what I did was for reasons which I would think are morally objectionable and so i mean i, I think it's just a, a an irrational fear in in a higher power that keeps me uh true and authentic and and abiding by integrity because it's a great expression if you integrity is everything wait a minute either you have integrity and nothing else matters or you don't have integrity and nothing else matters and I, I, I never want to be in a position where people question my integrity yeah, yeah i agree you know there uh, in uh Again, forgive me, in one of the chapters of my next book, I talk about what I argue is the greatest. Maybe I shouldn't give away too much stuff because I want people to oh, buy the book. No, give it, give, well, <laughs> people are going to get the book anyhow. But there you one go. One more tidbit. <laughs> All right, here we go. So, in one of the chapters, uh, which uh, going on memory, I think is called The Sweet Spot, you know, everything in moderation or something to that effect. I mean, you remember the ancient Greeks talked about, Aristotle talked about the golden mean, where, for example, if you look at uh, courage versus uh, cowardice in a soldier. Well, if the soldier is cowardly, it's very bad. If he is recklessly courageous so that he gives up his life unnecessarily, he is also being an idiot. And so there is some happy mean. And so I take that argument and I say that almost every single phenomenon that you could think of at the neuronal level, at the individual level, at the societal level, follows this inverted you. Too little is not good. Too much is not good. Now, you might be asking, well, why am I talking about this in the context of authenticity? So if you look at, for example, things like uh, pursuit of perfectionism, in this case, perfectionism of your authentic self. Uh, when, I, when I received the galley proofs of one of my books, the galley proofs is the final thing that you read before the book is going to go into, pr into press, into print. Well, I go into a complete anxiety attack because this is my last opportunity to find a, a a comma that is in the wrong place. And so my per my perfectionism is so high that it is way beyond the golden mean. So this demonstrates that even for otherwise laudable characteristics, conscientiousness, drive for authenticity, you could surpass the point where it becomes too much. And I think it takes a lot of humility and self-insight to look within and say, well, where what are some of the traits that I possess if which if I only had them more modulated I would be a happier person. So to constantly worry about, am I perfect enough? Am I per authentic enough? 
is probably way more than what most people would expect of you, but you're being punishing to yourself. Well, absolutely. And it's, well, it's, it's just a form of neuroses and the form of uh, whatever labels we want to give it in a DSM five sense. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, and it never goes away, which is why, you know, in the practice of law, uh, it, practice of law is a great example. Like my fear of making mistakes was not of the fear of making the mistake in and of itself. It was that I did not want the judge to ever think that I was deliberately lying or concealing something. Right. Because, and look, talk about, everyone knows confession through projection on my channel. I, look, I, I, in, in the practice of law, I would be guilty of doing this very same thing. If opposing counsel and I had reason to believe had acted maliciously in concealing something, I would put it in writing and I would invoke it in front of a judge that a, a, a lawyer did not communicate an exhibit to me that I had asked for by way of undertaking in a deposition. I would do it not abusively and not reflexively, but I would do it when it was when it was warranted. And I expected other people to do the exact same thing of me, to say, Viva, you didn't disclose this to the judge. Why would you try to hide that fact from the judge? And it is the fear of a judge actually truly believing that I was trying to deceive or, or mislead that was, it, it, it was crippling to some extent because on the one hand, you would second guess yourself for too much time. And on the other hand, you might conduct yourself with too much transparency in a sense that might be exactly. actually detrimental to your own client. Because it's like, so, without getting into any examples, but I mean, it, so it is, it's, it's torturous and it has its benefits, but it has its- And, uh, and it totally well. fits the, the inverted you, right? Because you, yeah. you, you, right, exactly. Look, uh, in, in, in my case, it has affected me in the following additional way beyond simply being tortured about going being so overly conscientious and perfectionist. I have refused to collaborate with fellow colleagues because I consider them not necessarily as exhausting, exacting in their scientific processes as I would be. So the fear that they might be too cavalier about errors in their data or maybe they're not as honest as I am and maybe they might be because right I mean if you're if you're receiving data that is from coming from several thousand people and some of it is being handled in some other lab but you're collaborating with them I don't have control over that process so then it makes me kind of like the the deer in front of the headlights where I'm frozen in fear how do I know they won't do something that I would and so I have lost wonderful opportunities at times to collaborate with people because of my exacting personality. So yeah, there's there's always a cost to pay for violating the golden mean curve. And and a concrete cost as far as YouTube creation goes. I can't I can't have people edit my videos. Like I get requests, let me edit your videos. It's like no, one word out of place can change a meaning, and I don't. <laughs> I, I will. I want to assume my own mistakes. I'll tell you one thing, Gad. I don't know if it was the Honey Badger book that did it, the, the Parasitic Mind. I think I, I think I had gotten there already. One phobia that I have gotten over, or one fear that I have gotten over, is offending people for things that I did on purpose and that I meant to do. Right. And once upon a time, and and you know, once upon a time, I, I was afraid to express myself because I know I believe certain things, and I believe they're absolutely moral and legitimate beliefs. But I I know just by expressing them. It's going to hurt people. It's going to offend people, and it, it was one of the biggest, you know, reluctance. One of my biggest reluctances is that the word about running for office is, you know, just by virtue of running for a party, you're going to upset people from, right. you know, of other political persuasions. And at some point, I don't know when it happened, but it certainly happened. I've abandoned that. Um, I'm still concerned about uh, insulting people for the wrong reasons or having people be insulted for the wrong reasons, but. 
At some I, point, I think it's my it, my honey badger has been unleashed. I'm gonna I, sorry. I, don't, to I, I will call. I will say what I think now, and I will tell people why I think they're wrong. But I will listen to them still. So I'm gonna tell you how I would inte- uh, integrate what you just said within my uh, driving life ideals. So if you remember in chapter one of the parasitic mind, I talk about the two fundamental ideals that drive my life, which are truth and freedom, right? And so I describe, and freedom doesn't just mean freedom of speech. It means, you know, when I used to play competitive soccer, I used to play the playmaker position, which grants me freedom to move around the field without any positional constraints. As soon as I had a coach who told me, today you're playing on the left side of midfield, my head would explode because I felt now I was constrained to a geographical space. So there are many ways by which my drive for freedom is instantiated, only one of which is freedom of thought and freedom of speech and so on. Truth is, is my other ideal, which is a pathological drive to be truthful. So to me, if I were to look at your concern of I don't want to say something to hurt someone, yes, I don't want to be frivolously mean. But when I have competing drives, which is I'm either going to tell the truth or I'm going to tell the truth and hurt someone's feeling, telling the truth unencumbered by those concerns is a much greater uh, pursuit for me. So when I sit in my in my bed to fall asleep, if I modulated my speech so that I don't hurt someone's feelings, and hence I wasn't as truthful as I should have been, that's going to cause me problems. And so I don't have problems with offending people. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting rationale. I'm, as you were talking, I'm thinking as to whether or not my my reluctance to insult or hurt people came at a time when people were feigning hurt and feigning insult for political weaponization or political gain. Right. It's, it's, um, but it's the other thing, it's at some point you do realize, I didn't like it about law because you had to hurt people as part of the practice. To win was to hurt the defendant or to hurt the other party. And I didn't like that. In this, but I, I also think we've come to a point now where people have to, they have to be honest, otherwise you end up, you know, like, in, like you say in Parasitic Mind, you end up living in a world where the vocal, I don't want to use uh, insulting rhetoric, but the vocal people who are irrational? The blue-haired, the blue-haired Taliban. They end up, they end up, they end up, you know, ru- running the system, and then they end up running it into the ground. Right. So, uh, and, and and no 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 more debate uh, poignantly brings this out than the transgender athlete debate, where merely by taking a position which, uh, you know, arguably but not so arguably justified in in science and biology, is going to hurt people. But at some point, you also have to say. To take the other position, you're going to end up hurting other people. And of course. You're, you're in a position where you're dealing with policy. Someone is going to be hurt one way or the other. The only question is, is the hurt, uh, is the hurt self-imposed? Is it justified or is it, is it avoidable? But, so I'll, um, give you, I'll give you an example of these kinds of uh, weighings that we're discussing uh, in the context of a conversation I had yesterday on Twitter with some random guy whom I'd never heard of. So I had shared a clip where I had wished, uh, not a clip, I had shared a tweet where I had wished uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, best of luck in his next phase because he's just retired from University of Toronto. And this, uh, apparently this guy is a physician from South Africa. He kind of writes an insulting tweet, uh, you know, regarding the fact that I'm friends with uh, with Jordan. And so, of course, I go to check who this, this idiot is. And uh, of course, he has the uh, BLM, He's from South Africa. 
white guy. He he has BLM. He's got all of the the woke markers. I mean, really to the point where it's stereotypical. He's got his pronouns. And so I asked him. I said, "Oh, you're a physician. Well, you know, maybe my you know I, I don't have a medical degree, so maybe you could help me here, Doc. Uh, let me ask you two questions." Can men sometimes menstruate? Question one. Question two. Can men sometimes get pregnant? Because I need to be updated. I'm an evolutionist. I need to have my my biology updated. Please answer me. I asked it about six, seven different times. A physician was unwilling to answer the question of whether men sometimes menstruate or whether men sometimes have pregnancy. That speaks exactly to my early point about truth. If you remember in the parasitic mind, I said, yes, it's nice to pursue noble social justice goals, but you never murder a millimeter of truth in the pursuit of that goal, because then you become a consequentialist when it comes to truth. Because what you're saying is, I'm willing to modulate what I say to be true or not in the service of another goal. Whereas I argue that when it comes to truth, you have to be deontological, meaning there's an absolute thing. It's true or not. So when this guy is unwilling to be truthful about whether men can menstruate or or be pregnant because he wants to be a ally to marginalized people, he's a schmuck who should be called out. And I don't care if his feelings are hurt. He's a rapist of truth, and I'll call him out on it. Well, I might not use that rhetoric, (laughs) but... That's why I'm Gatsad, baby. (laughs) No, it's the... um, This is where you also, you get into the area of of, of people feigning... Uh, outrage for political purposes to to make that the idea that to state that or to affirm that would offend some would be predicated on the idea that to acknowledge that is itself some form of discrimination and then it and then it unjustly and it wrongly lumps together legitimate discrimination against people who identify as other versus the biological distinctions between uh, male and female that are as 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 core to nature as gravity and then, you have that, and then you, you get to a world where people can't admit the obvious and they can't state factually obvious statements because of the way it's been weaponized for other political purposes. And yeah, it's, 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 um, it, 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 we've, we've reached, um, I don't know if it's, if it's the depths of it because it, doesn't, it seems to keep getting worse, but uh, the inability to state the obvious and, and, and the backlash for doing so is itself very telling of the times. Indeed. All right, let me try to ask a few other cool personal questions. This is one that I've now become accustomed to asking to many of my guests, if only because I'm writing about this in my next book. Yeah, get ready. Go on. (laughs) So uh, one of my former professors at uh, Cornell when I was a doctoral student there is a wonderful guy, his psychologist by name of Thomas Gilovich, who uh, pioneered the uh, study of the psychology of regret. Specifically, he uh, pointed to two sources of regret, a regret due to action and regret due to inaction. So regret due to action, I regret that I cheated on my wife. It led to the, to our divorce and I should have never cheated on her. I, I committed an action and I regret it. Uh, regret due to inaction, I regret that I never pursued my interest in commercial photography and became a lawyer because I hate being a lawyer and now I'm 67 and I can't stand this. So it turns out that for most people, their most looming and haunting regret is one due to inaction. My God, I should send you a bill for that psychology lesson right there. Uh, oh, no, I, 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 I knew that already because one because. already knows the consequences of their actions of regret. So it's much easier to, to compartmentalize, whereas you never know what might have been for that which you didn't do. Fair, fair enough. So if I were to ask you, you're still a young man, so it's not as though you're at the 
the doorstep of your demise. But what today, if you look back at your life, is there anything that you regret and are you willing to share it with us? Is there anything that I truly regret? Yeah, don't tell me that I regret that I didn't have the second serving at Harvey's yesterday. I'm talking about meaningful regrets. Uh, by the way, for, uh, the, for the U.S. viewers, Harvey's is like uh, Burger King. In I think they've got they have Harvey's in the states. I don't think so. Huh. Okay, Har- Harvey's is it's actually good. I think they have. It's a real fantastic. Beer. It's it's one of the great um, wonders of, of of the world. Do I have any regrets? The it, fact it, that it, it's taking you so long to think about it is actually good news from your perspective. Well, because I can only should... think of super. I, I can think of things that I have said to people that I regret, which I won't share because mm, I bigger, yeah. bigger, bigger, big regrets, existential regrets, life changing regrets. Nothing. You can't think of no, one because I, I got to tell you, like, I, no, because I think that with the things that I might that. Other people might, in my shoes, regret was not having lived a rambunctious of a, not, a, a rambunctious enough of a life in youth. Um, I've never cheated on my wife or girlfriend. Don't plan on ever doing it. Uh, I've never. What an it. honorable guy you like. I'm I'm falling in love with you more by well, the I'm second. Talking, I'm not, I'm not, I was like, I, it's, it, I've led a pretty boring life, so I haven't regret, regretted anything by act. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to think like. No, I never did anything truly terrible to somebody else that I still live. I, I said things. I remember saying things to my father back in my troubled days. I remember saying things, some specific things, which I still cringe about when I think. But by act, no. And by omission. Um, well, maybe the fact that you left your law practice and then pursued the current career at, uh, that you're on is what forestalled that potential regret. Because we could have been sitting here now where you're saying, you know, I regret that I never did that YouTube adventure. But but you did it, so maybe that's why you don't have any regrets. Definitely regret. I know that I would regret. I mean, I'm not even sure. I, I'd have a triple bypass. I, may, I might still have the triple bypass <laughs> at some point in time. But um, no, I, no, I, I, I don't because... No, I mean, I, I don't think I've avoided certain decisions. We'll, we'll revisit this in 10 years. But okay. I, I, you know, cause maybe I would, have, I would have liked to have had a fourth kid. But w- who knows? My, yes. <laughs> not, no promises and no... Uh, I do actually regret that. My wife and I started uh, late. Uh, we, we had been together for many years. And then by, by choice, we started late. And in retrospect, I would have liked to have had more children. Although sometimes now when I see them as they enter their teenage years... Maybe I don't regret it so much, but but uh, yeah, it's uh... Uh, well. No, I'm mean, look, Gad. I I don't know. I don't think I've. I, I... Well, that's wonderful. That that. By the way, I argue that the one who can live their life without having any regrets in the way that you are now uh, exemplifying is one who has achieved ataraxia, tranquility oh, but who, of mind. But, or or I'm, I'm just, I've set such a low standard for the excitement of my life <laughs> that maybe maybe I should have gone skydiving or whatever. No. Uh, no, it's like, and even the thing is this, it might be a question of perspective, Gad. Like, I, I, I don't regret having practiced law and having been miserable for, for what I think is miserable for years, because without that, I wouldn't necessarily be where I was. So I think even the idea of framing regret might have to do with one's perspective, where right. you could say, like, I could, I could deeply regret not having been, you know, sowed my wild oats as a, as a kid. Okay, but then the the flip side is if you you could either choose to look back on that with regret or say I I wouldn't be where I I wouldn't be with whom I'm with right now had I done it. So the idea of regret might itself just be a question of perspective setting aside the big issues like you know DUI, getting in an accident and killing somebody. I mean, again, this is not a regret. But I I've gotten into a few car accidents and have not in 20 not in jeez, how old am I? Not in 25 years. When I was 17, just got my license. 
I, I, I crashed my parents' Suburban, rolled it, ended up on the roof, and, you know, but for seatbelts and but for fluke, if I had killed someone, yeah, that would have been a, a, a that it's sure. that would have been a regret because I was doing something stupid that led to the accident. Uh, but, you know, it turned out to be monetary damages for which my parents were very understanding uh, and, and nobody died. And we all learned you know, I just had a haunting vision because as you're speaking, I, I, th I thought back of a time when I was in high school where there were these two brothers, Jewish brothers. And the reason I say it's haunting because actually now I realize that they that you you look a lot like them. Uh, there is kind of a a Jew Jewy phenotype well, well, here. Call it the the European the European the, look versus the, the, the Sephardi look. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, one of the two brothers tragically died in a car accident returning from I think Saint Sauveur. And as a kid, you know, we were I don't know maybe fifteen, sixteen. I remember that this was a very shocking thing, even though I didn't know them too well. I, I remember I had gone to their house once, and and the the one who survived, the brother who I, I don't even know if he was in the in the in the accident itself, but the older brother, then went down a trajectory of drugs and a lot of misery, uh, perhaps in part because of his brother's death. And so, yeah, it's it, it basically points to the. Uh, vagaries of life, right? The the vicissitudes of life, and in your case, you were able to get out unscathed. In other cases, they're not as as fortunate. No, that's it. That's it. Like, and and I can think of other incidents where, I, not not God in the capital G sense, but but for the grace of, one one thing goes one way different, and your entire life trajectory is is is, uh, is different. I mean, I recently dug up and called up the the two teachers from from two different high schools that I went to, uh, and to thank them. For making a decision back when I was 13 and 15, which, you know, they could have ratted me out or they could have made a, a stink and it would have altered the trajectory of my life. And, you know, maybe maybe that's a that's a regret. Uh, thank goodness I, I looked them up because one of them died six months after I contacted wow. them for not for not for not getting me kicked out of a second high school, which would have done God knows what. And the other one I thanked for not getting me. What you were a you were a hoodlum? What's going on here? Let's uh, let's a, uh, scratch this. What's going I had on? A, um, no, I was I was a I was a troublesome kid between thirteen and say thirteen and sixteen. I, I settled down. Maybe What's the source to... of the trouble or or the manifestation of the trouble? You're into drugs. You're uh, beating up yeah, people. Well, I was, I was, you're what? What's was, happening? Yeah, I look. It's it's uh, people know. I mean, I, we used to do marijuana in high school, uh -huh. uh, which. But that's a manifestation. It was the youngest of five kids, either looking for attention, either having some sort of, uh, I don't know if it's called oppositional defiance disorder, but I, I didn't like authority much. Uh, you get into trouble, and, and you know, but for certain flukes and but for certain bad turns, life of two, two same people can turn out radically different, uh, pushing, pushing the envelope uh, in a number of respects. But settled down by Sejep, and then, you know, hit the straight now for the rest of my life of sorts. But, you know, like I, two, two concrete examples where had I not reached out to that, he was the vice principal of the high school at the time since passed away. I, I would have thoroughly regretted not letting him know that I appreciate how he's effectively. How did they my, each respond to your overtures? One of them, both, you know, amazing and both good to see that you're, you know, a functional member of society and not what they might have thought I might have turned into. Um so no, and and it's and it's and the the other funny thing is you realize that they're not they they although they felt much older than you and much different than you at the time, one of the teachers was maybe ten or fifteen years older than me, 
And uh, the older you get, the less that difference yeah, makes. Yeah, of course. And, and you realize that that person is probably just as immature uh, then as I am now and looking at a kid saying, why, why destroy what I don't have to destroy? Wow. I, I have not quite the same story in that the, the overture in your case was from you to the teachers about a year ago. And, and you can't imagine how I actually did a sad truth on this. Uh, about a year ago, I was contacted by my grade seven teacher. Uh, now, at the time, uh, my elementary school had grade seven as part of elementary. It was different. So you, you went, so I went to a school, you may or may not know it, called Iona Elementary School, which was in, uh, which is in Ponsard uh, Street. I mean, this... oh, I, I know, I know where Ponsard Street is, exactly. I didn't know about the school. Yeah. So, so, so grade seven was the last year of elementary school. And I'd always remembered this teacher. She was quite young. So if we were about 12, 13, she was about maybe 10 years older. So a very young teacher. A lot of the boys had the little hotties for her and so on. And I'd never found out what ever happened to this teacher. And I, I thought she was she had been a great teacher. And one day I opened my emails and here is a, 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 a note from, I mean, it's public. I, okay, I won't mention her name. Uh, and... Uh, at the time, COVID happened, uh, and so we couldn't meet. But then she said, "Hey, when when COVID uh, you know allows us to, maybe we can meet for coffee." And so I ended up meeting with her for coffee. You know, forty some years after being, and she reminded me of things about me that I had forgotten. And I just thought it was such a beautiful, touching moment between you know two people that had crossed paths in a very particular context in the 1970s. So for example, she said, well, you, you were always a, you know, a very fun and I mean, very good student, but always fun. And, the, and I said, yeah, well, that I still am that guy. She says, yes, I've watched your videos and so on. And then she said, and I think you used to like some songs by Rod Stewart. And I said, yes, that is well, so true. It's, no, it's, it is interesting to, to contemplate why uh, she, if she had such a memory of you, you know, as a student, it's, it's an amazing thing. Like, I, I, yeah. I would be curious to know what relationship you had at the time, not in any sexual sense, no, but rather, I think how probably, did you, how, did you, I, I'm how sorry. did you mark her so that like, so that so long later she was still, she still So remembered. I can't speak for that, but I'm going to guess that you know, I'm someone who's very present, right? Like, in other words, I'm, it's, I mean, I don't want to speak of myself, but it's kind of hard to, I, I don't go unnoticed. And so, you know, I participated in class. I joked in class. I, and so for whatever combination of those factors, I'm someone who I'm, I'm presuming somehow was memorable to her by my presence. And so, and I guess after that, she caught me on some show or something. I think it might've been even, uh, it might have been she caught me at, uh, I was speaking at the Jewish Public Library. I, I, my, my memory might be off here. But she saw me in some context and said, wait a minute, I know this guy. He was my student. And so that's what kind of compelled her to write to me. So, wow. That's interesting. Oh, oh, and again, I, I can think of one thing I regret. I don't, we don't need to get into the details because I was 12 years old and okay. it is, it's non-sexual. It, but the funny thing is all of the things that I do reflexively regret, they go back to the underlying principle that it was, it involved treating another human like an object. And not like an not, not like an autonomous human. And I remember what I did. It was it was it was a prank that was fundamentally disrespectful to an absolutely innocent person. Uh, didn't nobody died, nobody got hurt. But I, I that's the one big thing in my mind that I that I do regret. And it follows the same lines of things that you feel bad about having done, which is when you recognize that you were using someone 
as, as you are objectifying a human and not respecting them as a human. Am I sensing that you're going to look for that person and send an apology? Is there, that what's happening next? I, no, I can, there is absolutely no way that I could ever reach that person. And I suspect they've probably passed away since because there, there was an age gap in, in it. But it was, um, yeah, n- n- there's no way of atoning for that except in my, in my conscience and in my soul and in my behavior going forward. Beautiful. All right. Last question. Are there any, not that you need, you know, my platform to promote, you have a large platform yourself, but is there anything that you're currently working on that you'd love to, that you'd like to use this platform to promote? This is your chance to do so. Take it away. Gad, I'm thinking of writing a book, but I don't think I can do it because it would be hypocritical of me to write a book when I cannot read a book. So unless, unless I could just go straight to audio, which is basically what I do every day with my videos, um, I, I was I was looking through a, a correspondence I had with a friend of mine, childhood friend during the pandemic, and just reading through the back and forth. Um, it was a real time descent into madness, starting from March 2020, and like to put that into a book, contextualizing what went on in the world at the same time. I think there's a book there, but no. Other than that, uh, YouTube, Viva Fry. Everybody knows me from there, and I put out my daily verbal books uh, or verbal essays, and the angry and sort of Un, not untethered, but rather uncensored. Viva Fry is on Twitter at the Viva Fry and locals. For anybody who doesn't yet know about it, vivabarneslaw.locals.com is the platform that I have with Robert Barnes, where we talk about a lot of stuff that we can't actually talk about on the YouTubes. And let me do my little spiel, guys. If you enjoy these kinds of chats. Please consider supporting the channel any way that you can. You could go below the YouTube channel. There's a place where there's a heart icon. You can press it and donate whatever you want. I've got other donation portals. Anything that you can provide to uh, grant me some freedom from all of the risks that I take would be appreciated. Hey, Viva, what an incredible conversation we had. You are such a charming guy. I look forward to seeing you around in Montreal. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Stay on the line so we can say bye offline. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Cheers. All right.